Chapter sixty seven, part two of the Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter sixty seven, part two The External Soul in Folk Custom. Section four The Ritual of Death and Resurrection this view of totemism throws light on the class of religious rites of which no adequate explanation so far as i am aware has yet been offered amongst many savage tribes especially such as are known to practice totemism it is customary for lads at puberty to undergo certain initiatory rites of which one of the commonest is a pretense of killing the lad and bringing him to life again such rites become intelligible if we suppose that their substance consists in extracting the youth's soul in order to transfer it to his totem for the extraction of his soul would naturally be supposed to kill the youth or at least to throw him into a death-like trance which the savage hardly distinguishes from death his recovery would then be attributed either to the gradual recovery of his system from the violent shock which it had received or more probably to the infusion into him of fresh life drawn from the totem thus the essence of these initiatory rites so far as they consist in a simulation of death and resurrection would be an exchange of life or souls between the man and his totem the primitive belief in the possibility of such an exchange of souls comes clearly out in a story of a basque hunter who affirmed that he had been killed by a bear but that the bear had after killing him breathed its own soul into him so that the bear's body was now dead but he himself was a bear being animated by the bear's soul this revival of the dead hunter as a bear is exactly analogous to what on the theory here suggested is supposed to take place in the ceremony of killing a lad at puberty and bringing him to life again the lad dies as a man and comes to life again as an animal the animal soul is now in him and his human soul is in the animal with good right therefore does he call himself a bear or a wolf etc according to his totem and with good right does he treat the bears or the wolves etc as his brethren since in these animals are lodged the souls of himself and his kindred examples of this supposed death and resurrection and initiation are as follows in the wongi or wongibon tribe of new south wales the youths on approaching manhood are initiated at a secret ceremony which none but initiated men may witness part of the proceedings consists in knocking out a tooth and giving a new name to the novice indicative of the change from youth to manhood while the teeth are being knocked out an instrument known as a bull-roarer which consists of a flat piece of wood with serrated edges tied to the end of a string is swung round so as to produce a loud humming noise the uninitiated are not allowed to see this instrument women are forbidden to witness the ceremonies under pain of death it is given out that the youths are each met in turn by a mythical being called theremlin or more commonly known as deramelin who takes the youth to a distance, kills him, and in some instances cuts him up, 
after which he restores him to life and knocks out a tooth. Their belief in the power of Thuremlin is said to be undoubted. The Ularoi of the Upper Darling River said that at initiation the boy met a ghost, who killed him and brought him to life again as a young man. Among the natives on the lower Lachlan and Murray rivers, it was Thrumalun or Darumulun, who was thought to slay and resuscitate the novices. In the Unmatjera tribe of central Australia, women and children believe that a spirit called Twenyarika kills the youth and afterwards brings him to life again during the period of initiation. The rites of initiation in this tribe, as in the other central tribes, comprise the operations of circumcision and subincision, and as soon as the second of these has been performed on him, the young man receives from his father a sacred stick, with which, he is told, his spirit was associated in the remotest past. While he is out in the bush recovering from his wounds, he must swing the ball-roarer, or a being who lives up in the sky will swoop down and carry him off. In the Bibinga tribe, on the western coast of the Gulf of Carpentaria, the women and children believe that the noise of the bull-roarer at initiation is made by a spirit named Katajalina, who lives in an anthill and comes out and eats up the boy, afterwards restoring him to life. Similarly, among the neighbors of Anula, the women imagine that the droning sound of the bull-roarer is produced by a spirit called Nebaya, who swallows the lads at initiation, and afterwards disgorges them in the form of initiated men. Among the tribes settled on the southern coast of New South Wales, of which the coast Muring tribe may be regarded as typical, the drama of resurrection from the dead was exhibited in a graphic form to the novices at initiation. The ceremony has been described for us by an eyewitness. A man, disguised with stringy bark fiber, lay down in a grave and was lightly covered up with sticks and earth. In his hand he held a small bush which appeared to be growing in the soil and other bushes were stuck in the ground to heighten the effect. Then the novices were brought and placed beside the grave. Next, a procession of men, disguised in stringy bark fiber, drew near. They represented a party of medicine men, guided by two reverend seniors who had come on pilgrimage to the grave of a brother medicine man, who lay buried there. When the little procession, chanting an invocation to Daramulun, had defiled from among the rocks and trees into the open, it drew up on the side of the grave opposite to the novices, the two old men taking up a position in the rear of the dancers. For some time the dance and song went on till the tree that seemed to grow from the grave began to quiver. "'Look there!' cried the men to the novices, pointing to the trembling leaves. As they looked, the tree quivered more and more, then was violently agitated and fell to the ground, while amid the excited dancing of the dancers and the chanting of the choir, the supposed dead man spurned from him the superincumbent mass of sticks and leaves, and springing to his feet, danced his magic dance in the grave itself, and exhibited in his mouth the magic substances which he was supposed to have received from Dramulun in person. Some tribes in northern New Guinea, the Yabim, Bakua, Kai, and Tami, like many Australian tribes, 
require every male member of the tribe to be circumcised before he ranks as a full grown man, and the tribal initiation, of which circumcision is the central feature, is conceived by them, as by some Australian tribes, as a process of being swallowed and disgorged by a mythical monster whose voice is heard in the humming sound of the bull-roarer. Indeed, the New Guinea tribes not only impress this belief on the minds of women and children, but enact it in a dramatic form at the actual rites of initiation, at which no woman or uninitiated person may be present. For this purpose, a hut about a hundred feet long is erected either in the village or in a lonely part of the forest. It is modeled in the shape of the mythical monster. At the end which represents his head, it is high, and it tapers away at the other end. A betel palm, grubbed up with the roots, stands for the backbone of the great being and its clustering fibers for his hair, and to complete the resemblance, the butt end of the building is adorned by a native artist with a pair of goggle eyes and a gaping mouth. When, after a tearful parting from their mothers and womenfolk, who believe or pretend to believe in the monster that swallows their dear ones, the awestruck novices are brought face to face with this imposing structure. The huge creature emits a sullen growl, which is in fact no other than the humming note of the bull-roarers swung by men concealed in the monster's belly. The actual process of deglutition is variously enacted. Among the Tammy, it is represented by causing the candidates to defile past a row of men who hold bull-roarers over their heads. Among the Kai, it is more graphically set forth by making them pass under a scaffold on which stands a man, who makes a gesture of swallowing and takes in fact a gulp of water as each trembling novice passes beneath him. But the present of a pig, opportunely offered for the redemption of the youth, induces the monster to relent and disgorge his victim. The man who represents the monster accepts the gift vicariously. A gurgling sound is heard, and the water which has just been swallowed descends in a jet on the novice. This signifies that the young man has been released from the monster's belly. However, he has now to undergo the more painful and dangerous operation of circumcision. It follows immediately that the cut made by the knife of the operator is explained to be a bite or scratch which the monster inflicted on the novice in spewing him out of his capacious maw. While the operation is proceeding, a prodigious noise is made by the swinging of bull-roarers to represent the roar of the dreadful being who is in the act of swallowing the young man. When, as sometimes happens, a lad dies from the effect of the operation, he is buried secretly in the forest, and his sorrowing mother is told that the monster has a pig's stomach as well as a human stomach, and that, unfortunately, her son slipped into the wrong stomach, from which it was impossible to extricate him. After they have been circumcised, the lads must remain for some months in seclusion, shunning all contact with women and even the sight of them. They live in the long hut which represents the monster's belly. When at last the lads, now ranking as initiated men, are brought back with great pomp and ceremony to the village, 
they are received with sobs and tears of joy by the women as if the grave had given up its dead at first the young men keep their eyes rigidly closed or even sealed with a plaster of caulk and they appear not to understand the words of command which are given them by an elder gradually however they come to themselves as if awakening from a stupor and next day they bathe and wash off the crust of white chalk with which their bodies had been coated it is highly significant that all these tribes of new guinea apply the same word to the bull-roarer and to the monster who were supposed to swallow the novices at circumcision and whose fearful roar is represented by the hum of the harmless wooden instruments further it deserves to be noted that in three languages out of the four the same word which is applied to the bull-roarer and to the monster means also a ghost or spirit of the dead while in the fourth language the kai it signifies grandfather from this it seems to follow that the being who swallows and disgorges the novices at initiation is believed to be a powerful ghost or ancestral spirit and that the bull-roarer which bears his name is his material representative that would explain the jealous secrecy with which the sacred implement is kept from the sight of women while they are not in use the bull-roarers are stowed away in the men's clubhouses which no woman may enter indeed no woman or uninitiated person may set eyes on a bull-roarer under pain of death similarly among the Tugeri or kaya kaya a large papuan tribe on the south coast of dutch new guinea the name of the bull-roarer which they call sosom is given to a mythical giant who is supposed to appear every year with the southeast monsoon when he comes a festival is held in his honor and bull-roarers are swung boys are presented to the giant and he kills them but considerately brings them to life again in certain districts of viti levu the largest of the fijian islands the drama of death and resurrection used to be acted with much solemnity before the eyes of young men at initiation in a sacred enclosure they were shown a row of dead or seemingly dead men lying on the ground their bodies cut open and covered with blood their entrails protruding but at a yell from the high priest the counterfeit dead men started to their feet and ran down to the river to cleanse themselves from the blood and guts of pigs with which they were beslobbered soon they marched back to the sacred enclosure as if come to life clean fresh and garlanded swaying their bodies in time to the music of a solemn hymn and took their places in front of the novices such was the drama of death and resurrection the people of rook an island between new guinea and new britain hold festivals at which one or two disguised men their heads covered with wooden masks go dancing through the village followed by all the other men they demand that the circumcised boys who have not yet been swallowed by marsaba or the devil shall be given up to them the boys trembling and shrieking are delivered to them and must creep between the legs of the disguised men then the procession moves through the village again and announces that marsaba has eaten up the boys and will not disgorge them till he receives a present of pigs taro and so forth 
so all the villagers, according to their means, contribute provisions, which are then consumed in the name of Marsaba. In the west of Sarum, boys at puberty are admitted to the Kakian Association. Modern writers have commonly regarded this association as primarily a political league instituted to resist foreign domination. In reality, its objects are purely religious and social, though it is possible that the priests may have occasionally used their powerful influence for political ends. The society is in fact merely one of those widely diffused primitive institutions of which a chief object is the initiation of young men. In recent years, the true nature of the association has been duly recognized by the distinguished Dutch ethnologist J. G. F. Rydell. The Kakian house is an oblong wooden shed, situated under the darkest trees in the depth of the forest, and is built to admit so little light that it is impossible to see what goes on in it. Every village has such a house. Thither the boys who are to be initiated are conducted blindfold, followed by their parents and relations. Each boy is led by the hand of two men, who act as his sponsors or guardians, looking after them during the period of initiation. When all are assembled before the shed, the high priest calls aloud upon the devils. Immediately, a hideous uproar is heard to proceed from the shed. It is made by men with bamboo trumpets, who have been secretly introduced into the building by a back door. But the women and children think it is made by the devils, and are much terrified. Then the priests enter the shed, followed by the boys, one at a time. As soon as each boy has disappeared within the precincts, a dull chopping sound is heard, a fearful cry rings out, and a sword or spear dripping with blood is thrust through the roof of the shed. This is a token that the boy's head has been cut off, and that the devil has carried him away to the other world, there to regenerate and transform him. So, at the sight of the bloody sword, the mothers weep and wail, crying that the devil has murdered their children. In some places, it would seem, the boys are pushed through an opening made in the shape of a crocodile's jaws or a cassowary's beak, and it is then said that the devil has swallowed them. The boys remain in the shed for five or nine days. Sitting in the dark, they hear the blast of the bamboo trumpets and from time to time the sound of musket shots and the clash of swords. Every day they bathe, and their faces and bodies are smeared with a yellow dye to give them the appearance of having been swallowed by the devil. During his stay in the Kakian house, each boy has one or two crosses tattooed with thorns on his breast or arm. When they are not sleeping, the lads must sit in a crouching posture without moving a muscle. As they sit in a row, cross-legged, with their hands stretched out, the chief takes his trumpet, and placing the mouth of it on the hands of each lad, speaks through it in strange tones, imitating the voice of the spirits. He warns the lads, under pain of death, to observe the rules of the Kakian society, and never to reveal what has passed in the Kakian house. The novices are also told by the priests to behave well to their blood relations, and are taught the traditions and secrets of the tribe. Meantime, 
the mothers and sisters of the lads have gone home to weep and mourn but in a day or two the men who acted as guardians or sponsors to the novices return to the village with the glad tidings that the devil at the intercession of the priests has restored the lads to life the men who bring this news come in a fainting state and daubed with mud like messengers freshly arrived from the netherworld before leaving the kakian house each lad receives from the priest a stick adorned at both ends with a cock's or cassowary's feathers the sticks are supposed to have been given to the lads by the devil at the time when he restored them to life and they serve as a token that the youths have been in the spirit land when they return to their homes they totter in their walk and enter the house backward as if they had forgotten how to walk properly or they enter the house by the back door if a plate of food is given to them they hold it upside down they remain dumb indicating their wants by signs only all this is to show that they are still under the influence of the devil or the spirits their sponsors have to teach them all the common acts of life as if they were newborn children further upon leaving the kakian house the boys are strictly forbidden to eat of certain fruits until the next celebration of the rites has taken place and for twenty or thirty days their hair may not be combed by their mothers or sisters at the end of that time the high priest takes them to a lonely place in the forest and cuts off a lock of hair from the crown of each of their heads after these initiatory rites the lads are deemed men and may marry it would be a scandal if they married before in the region of the lower congo a simulation of death and resurrection is or rather used to be practiced by the members of a guild or secret society called dembo Quote, in the practice of dembo the initiating doctors get someone to fall down in a pretended fit and in that state he is carried away to an enclosed place outside the town this is called dying dembo others follow suit generally boys and girls but often young men and women they are supposed to have died but the parents and friends supply food and after a period varying according to custom from three months to three years it is arranged that the doctor shall bring them to life again when the doctor's fee has been paid the money or goods saved for a feast the dembo people are brought to life at first they pretend to know no one and nothing they do not even know how to masticate food and friends have to perform that office for them they want everything nice that anyone uninitiated may have and beat them if it is not granted or even strangle and kill people they do not get into trouble for this because it is thought that they do not know better sometimes they carry on the pretense of talking gibberish and behaving as if they had returned from the spirit world after this they are known by another name peculiar to those who have died dembo we hear of the custom far along on the upper river as well as in the cataract region among some of the indian tribes of north america there exist certain religious associations which are only open to candidates who have gone through a pretense of being killed and brought to life again in seventeen sixty six or seventeen sixty seven captain jonathan carver witnessed the admission of a candidate to an association called 
the friendly society of the spirit among the naudawessis a Siouan or dakotan tribe in the region of the great lakes the candidate knelt before the chief who told him that quote, he himself was now agitated by the same spirit which he should in a few moments communicate to him that it would strike him dead but that he would instantly be restored again to life to this he added that the communication however terrifying was a necessary introduction to the advantages enjoyed by the community into which he was on the point of being admitted as he spoke this he appeared to be greatly agitated till at last his emotions became so violent that his countenance was distorted and his whole frame convulsed at this juncture he threw something that appeared both in shape and colour like a small bean at the young man which seemed to enter his mouth and he instantly fell as motionless as if he had been shot for a time the man lay like dead but under a shower of blows he showed signs of consciousness and finally discharging from his mouth the bean or whatever it was that the chief had thrown at him he came to life in other tribes for example the ojibways winnebagoes and dakotas or sioux the instrument by which the candidate is apparently slain is the medicine bag the bag is made of the skin of an animal such as an otter wild cat serpent bear raccoon wolf owl weasel of which it roughly preserves the shape each member of the society has one of these bags in which he keeps the odds and ends that make up his medicine or charms Quote, they believe that from the miscellaneous contents in the belly of the skin bag or animal there issues a spirit or breath which has the power not only to knock down and kill a man but also to set him up and restore him to life Close quote. the mode of killing a man with one of these medicine bags is to thrust it at him he falls like dead but a second thrust of the bag restores him to life a ceremony witnessed by the castaway john r jewett during his captivity among the indians of nootka sound doubtless belongs to this class of customs the indian king or chief quote, discharged a pistol close to his son's ear who immediately fell down as if killed upon which all the women of the house set up a most lamentable cry tearing handfuls of hair from their heads and exclaiming that the prince was dead at the same time a great number of the inhabitants rushed into the house armed with their daggers muskets etc inquiring the cause of their outcry these were immediately followed by two others dressed in wolf skins with masks over their face representing the head of that animal the latter came in on their hands and feet in a manner of a beast and taking up the prince carried him off upon their backs retiring in the same manner they entered in another place jewett mentions that the young prince a lad of about eleven years of age wore a mask in imitation of a wolf's head now as the indians of this part of america are divided into totem clans of which the wolf clan is one of the principal and as the members of each clan are in the habit of wearing some portion of the totem animal about their person it is probable that the prince belonged to the wolf clan and that the ceremony described by jewett represented the killing of the lad in order that he might be born anew as a wolf 
much in the same way that the Basque hunter supposed himself to have been killed and to have come to life again as a bear. This conjectural explanation of the ceremony has, since it was first put forward, been to some extent confirmed by the researches of Dr. Franz Boas among these Indians, though it would seem that the community to which the chief's son thus obtained admission was not so much a totem clan as a secret society called Tlokoala, whose members imitated wolves. Every new member of the society must be initiated by the wolves. At night, a pack of wolves, personated by Indians dressed in wolf skins and wearing wolf masks, make their appearance, seize the novice, and carry him into the woods. When the wolves are heard outside the village, coming to fetch away the novice, all the members of the society blacken their faces and sing, Among all the tribes is great excitement, because I am Tlokoala. Next day, the wolves bring back the novice dead, and the members of the society have to revive him. The wolves are supposed to have put a magic stone into his body, which must be removed before he can come to life. Till this is done, the pretended corpse is left lying outside the house. Two wizards go and remove the stone, which appears to be quartz, and then the novice is resuscitated. Among the Niska Indians of British Columbia, who are divided into four principal clans with the raven, the wolf, the eagle, and the bear for their respective totems, the novice at initiation is always brought back by an artificial totem animal. Thus, when a man was about to be initiated into a secret society called Olala, his friends drew their knives and pretended to kill him. In reality, they let him slip away, while they cut off the head of a dummy which had been adroitly substituted for him. Then they laid the decapitated dummy down and covered it over, and the women began to mourn and wail. His relations gave a funeral banquet and solemnly burnt the effigy. In short, they held a regular funeral. For a whole year, the novice remained absent and was seen by none but members of the secret society. But at the end of that time, he came back alive, carried by an artificial animal which represented his totem. In these ceremonies, the essence of the rite appears to be the killing of the novice in his character of a man, and his restoration to life in the form of the animal, which is thenceforward to be, if not his guardian spirit, at least linked to him in a peculiarly intimate relation. It is to be remembered that the Indians of Guatemala, whose life was bound up with an animal, were supposed to have the power of appearing in the shape of the particular creature with which they were thus sympathetically united. Hence, it seems not unreasonable to conjecture that in like manner the Indians of British Columbia may imagine that their life depends on the life of some one of that species of creature to which they assimilate themselves by their costume. At least if that is not an article of belief with the Colombian Indians of the present day, it may very well have been so with their ancestors in the past, and thus may have helped to mould the rites and ceremonies both of the totem clans and of the secret societies. For though these two sorts of communities differ in respect of the mode in which membership of them is obtained, a man being born into his totem clan but admitted into a secret society later in life, 
we can hardly doubt that they are near akin and have their roots in the same mode of thought. That thought, if I am right, is the possibility of establishing a sympathetic relation with an animal, a spirit, or other mighty being with whom a man deposits for safe-keeping his soul or some part of it, and from whom he receives in return a gift of magical powers. Thus, on the theory here suggested, wherever totemism is found and wherever a pretense is made of killing and bringing to life again the novice at initiation, there may exist or have existed not only a belief in the possibility of permanently depositing the soul in some external object, animal, plant, or what not, but an actual intention of so doing. If the question is put, why do men desire to deposit their life outside their bodies, the answer can only be that, like the giant in the fairy tale, they think it safer to do so than to carry it about with them just as people deposit their money with a banker rather than carry it on their persons. We have seen that at critical periods the life or soul is sometimes temporarily stowed away in a safe place till the danger is past. But institutions like totemism are not resorted to merely on special occasions of danger. They are systems into which everyone, or at least every male, is obliged to be initiated at a certain period of life. Now the period of life at which initiation takes place is regularly puberty, and this fact suggests that the special danger which totemism and systems like it are intended to obviate is supposed not to arise till sexual maturity has been attained. In fact, that the danger apprehended is believed to attend the relation of the sexes to each other. It would be easy to prove by a long array of facts that the sexual relation is associated in the primitive mind with many serious perils, but the exact nature of the danger apprehended is still obscure. We may hope that a more exact acquaintance with savage modes of thought will in time disclose the central mystery of primitive society, and will thereby furnish the clue, not only to totemism, but to the origin of the marriage system. End of chapter 67 Part 2